0: The thing about the, the day of Pentecost, the thing about this uh, account that Luke has recorded for us is, uh, in one sense, it's, it's referring to something that we as Christians are meant to experience, that we necessarily have to experience. On, a, on, a, on the other side, it's also referring to this historical event that's not going to be repeated. And so there's this tension because what can happen is we can, uh, we can focus so much on this, the historical events, what God was doing with the Jewish people, what God was doing with the new nation, to the point that we want to kind of be suspicious of the personal applications of things. On the other hand, we can be so focused on what's the personal application of these things that we can forget that God was doing something specific on this day in history. That something was going on that isn't going to be repeated. And so it, it's it's one of these things where you, you can go on a lot of rabbit trails, you can talk about a lot of things, we can get into a lot of uh, discussion and, and talking about, oh, these people believe these things and these people believe these things. And we want to just try to think, okay, what's Luke trying to get at in recording these things? What is Luke wanting us to see? And so we look at verse 1. Luke tells us, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, that they were all in one accord in one place. And we know from what we've read so far in the book of Acts, that these guys were together, and they were praying. They were waiting for this promise that Jesus had made them. They were staying, and it says, in chapter 1, verse 14, it says that these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. And so here we have this 120 people. Uh, it's the, the, um, the 12 apostles. Uh, just obviously named Matthias as the 12th apostle. Uh, you have uh, some of the women that would, had ministered with Jesus, including Mary, uh, Jesus' mother, and his half-brothers. And all these are together, this diverse group of people, and they're waiting for this promise, and they don't know for sure when it's going to come. They, they, they might have thought, well, okay... Jesus was, you know, away from us in his crucifixion three days, so maybe in three days it'll come. Maybe they were thinking, okay, a week we'll wait for the following Sabbath to come, and then something like this will happen. I mean, they had no guarantees of when this was going to actually happen. So they're waiting in one accord, and the Bible's really clear that it came on this day of Pentecost. And we have to believe that what God does, he does on purpose. That what he's wanting to do, he's wanting to do uh, at this time for a specific reason. Now, you may not know this, but Pentecost uh, means the, the word means fifty that 's all it really means it means fifty and it 's basically fifty days from the time of Passover. Now, at Passover, which is the time around the time where Jesus was crucified, at Passover, what they would do is they would offer uh, the first fruit of the barley offering and they kind of wave that before um, They'd wave that before uh, the Lord as an offering to him. But then when it came to Pentecost, or 50 days later, they began what was called the Feast of Weeks. And they would then begin to celebrate this idea of the first fruits, or the first part of the, of the wheat offering that was coming in. So they'd take the first part of the wheat offering, and they'd offer that to God. And it was kind of a way of saying, God, you're the one that's blessed us. We're trusting it's going to be a good harvest. Here's the first fruit of the harvest. Now, that by itself tells us something. That God's timing of doing this new thing, building this new people, is happening in the time of first fruits. So that God's going to do something on this day of Pentecost that's to show um, his people about this new nation he's going to build. In fact, we won't see this for a few weeks because it's going to take us a few weeks to get through uh, Acts chapter 2. But basically on the first day, they go from the first day that the church is born, they go from 120 people to 3,120 people. And so, and so there's a reality that he's doing something here. Uh, and also, it's also <coughs> important for us to understand that he wants, uh, he wants us to, to see not just the, the reality of the coming of God's Spirit, but the reality of the purpose of the coming of God's Spirit. You guys remember what Jesus had said back in chapter 1 uh, of Acts, in, in, I think it's in verse 8, where Jesus says, But you shall receive power... When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and what will happen? You shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So that the purpose of the coming upon the Spirit was to empower these guys to do that work of saying, this Jesus is alive, this Jesus who who you've heard of, uh, (laughs) the same Jesus who was crucified, God's risen from the dead, and he's ushered in his kingdom. And so, this is what we're going to see at Pentecost. That one of the things that Luke wants us to see is that not only is God's promise coming to pass, but God's purpose for that promise is coming to pass. So, he describes it this way He says, on that day, verse 2, that suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing, mighty wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And we're going to see in just a little bit that this sound was loud enough to draw a crowd. Okay, So you're not just talking about a wind that would have been like, wow, that was a howling wind, but it's a wind that's in a a confined space. It's filling the house. It's a noise of of like, why is there like a a wind making noise in that house? Okay, So there's something obviously supernatural going on. It's not just there was a gust of wind. People thought, oh, wow, that was a strong gust of wind. We're talking about something going on in this place where these 120 were gathered together. And it shouldn't surprise us That this is one of the ways that the Holy Spirit would manifest Himself initially. That He would come and with Him would be the sound of a mighty rushing wind. Okay? It shouldn't surprise us because in both Hebrew and Greek, of course the words that are for spirit are also the same words that are used for wind. Right? And also, remember Jesus said in John chapter 3, He talks about, and when he's telling Nicodemus about the need to be born again, he talks about the work of the Spirit. The fact that he needed to be born of the Spirit. And what does he say? He says, the wind blows where it, where it wishes, and we don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is for he who's born of the Spirit. Talking about there's a, a sense of mystery to the work of the Spirit. He's, he's not, in, in a sense, that he's not as predictable as we'd like him to be. He doesn't do what we want him to do. He does what he wants to do. Paul kind of picks up on this in 1 Corinthians when he talks about the Spirit moves as he wills. He does what he wants to do. And so there's, a, there's that picture there. So there's this loud wind. It's drawing this huge crowd that we'll see in a minute. And it says, then it says in verse three, then there appeared to them, in other words, all the 120 are seeing this, divided tongues as of fire and one sat upon each of them. So they have this audible sign they hear something loud loud enough that it draws a crowd but now they also have a visible sign they see these tongues of fire on their heads now it's interesting about this because there's a lot of different debate about what this could be some say the tongue of fire is a representation of jesus saying you will be baptized in the holy spirit and fire and so it's just a literal there's a bit of fire there and that's just to literally fulfill god's word Others say, well, that, that that's a just symbolic of the fact He's going to do this work of purifying. He's going to make his, his people holy. But I think what we see most often, especially in the Old Testament, is fire is a sign of God's presence. That God's with them. So there's this audible sign. They hear this mighty rushing wind. And there's this visible sign of fire on each one of them. And that each one of them is going to be important later on. Then it says, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began... To speak with other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now it's important to recognize it doesn't say that the Spirit spoke through them, but they spoke in other tongues. And it's the word for tongues there is a word that means it's it's glossa or or, or uh, glossia in the Greek, and it means a language, a spoken language. Okay. So what's happening here is these guys are given an an ability to speak a language that they couldn't naturally know. That's what tongues are. The gift of tongues is a language that you couldn't naturally know. And they're all able to do this on this time. Now, one of the things that makes Pentecost unique is this reality that... uh, (laughs) Some kids looking through. Um, Is the reality that um, what we see happen in the Old Testament... Is the Holy Spirit coming upon. Neighborhood hoodlums that are opening and closing the door. Invite a minute. And. Uh, you see the Holy Spirit coming upon in the Old Testament. Just upon prophets. Priests and kings. Okay. So you see this reality. that, like, So like when Saul becomes king and he's anointed. The Holy Spirit comes upon him and he can prophesy. And people are so surprised about that. They say. Is, can, is Paul among the prophets and becomes like a proverb in the land. Because it wasn't just an everyday occurrence that everyone who was believing in the God of Israel had the Holy Spirit come upon them. It was only prophets, priests, and kings, those that were anointed for a specific work of God. But this is the thing that makes Pentecostal, Pentecost unique, this time, this uh, output of the Holy Spirit unique. It says specifically that all 120, so these are all the, the believers that are in the world at this time, all the believers in Jesus, there's only 120 of them at this time when the Holy Spirit comes, He comes upon each and every one of them. And each and every one of them are able to do this, this speaking in tongues. Now don't get nervous, we're going to explain why that happens. But this is what they did, they were able to speak in tongues. So the, the, the issue here, the thing that's really important to recognize, one of the unique things about Pentecost, is it shows us that God's going to do a new work by His Spirit. Where He's not going to just anoint with His Spirit, prophets, priests, and kings, but all believers... All believers. Now, this is important because even though we're talking about, there's a lot of debate about what does that look like and how do we know if each if each believer has actually been filled with the Holy Spirit. The reality is that we need to see it is God's will for every believer to be filled with the Spirit. First of all, every believer in Christ has the Spirit dwelling in them. In fact, save your place in Acts. Go over one book to Romans, Romans chapter eight. Look at Romans chapter 8. This is really important for us to see. Romans chapter 8. Look at verse... Verse 9. Oh wait, actually go up a couple of verses. Why don't you go ahead and look at verse... Start in verse 5. Romans chapter 8. Paul writes, For those who live according to the flesh that is, according to their natural ability, set their mind on things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. It is, it's against, it's an enemy against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. In other words, those who can only live by their own natural strength, cannot please God. But listen to what he says. Paul says, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. Do you see that? So first of all, it tells us a couple of things, Paul tells us a couple things about the Holy Spirit. One is that without the Holy Spirit, we can't please God. Without the Holy Spirit, we have no life in God. But also it tells us that the Spirit is the spirit of Christ. And so there's going to be uh, this this similarity in, in their actions and in their motives and in their character. And so there's a reality here that Paul's saying, listen, you can't be a Christian unless God's spirit dwells in you. That's what makes you a Christian. What makes you a follower of Jesus is because God, by his spirit, has called you to follow him. As you've responded to that, God has then come to live in you by his spirit... And as we'll we'll talk about throughout the book of Acts, comes upon you to fulfill his purpose uh, for mission, his purpose for what he wants the church to do. So this is the thing that we have to understand. The first thing we get to recognize uh, about Pentecost is that it is showing us something unique about the work of the Spirit. A New Testament uniqueness. Something's happening here that wasn't happening before. This is what I mean by everyone needing this. Sometimes you might come from a church background or you might have believers that are are friends that are believers that come from this kind of church background where the idea of the Holy Spirit makes them quite nervous. Or you may come from a background where uh, you've come out of of churches where you thought there might have been an excess. There might have been uh, things done that were said to be the Holy Spirit, but actually you're going, I'm not too sure that jives with the character of Christ. And either way what can happen is we can get to a place where we're kind of like let's just keep talking about Jesus and let's not talk about the work of the spirit. But what, what Paul I mean sorry what Luke wants us to see here in this in this history of the early church is how the church was birthed by the spirit and as we'll go through we'll see that the church was dependent upon the spirit so that we don't want to look at the work of the Spirit and go well it's kind of weird I'm not really sure about that we want to see that this is what God did with all his people now here's why look at verse 5 and there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews devout men from every nation under heaven now Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks was one of three feasts that the Jewish males were uh, meant to come to Jerusalem for. They were meant to visit Jerusalem. And so all faithful Jewish males made every effort to come to these three feasts every year. So all these nations that are around the Mediterranean Sea, there were Jewish people in these nations. And the men, uh, who were devout men, would come to Jerusalem for these things. Now, why that's important is because these devout devout men that we're going to see in just a second, they were probably there. Most of these men were probably there 50 days before at Passover. These were men who would have known about this rabbi from Galilee named Jesus. Uh, who claimed to be God's son. Who, who many thought was the Messiah. Uh, who was crucified and the rumor was that he was risen from the dead. They would have known this. Now obviously because they weren't with the 120, what does that mean? They weren't believers. So these people had actually heard of Jesus. Most of these men had probably actually heard of Jesus. That actually rejected that he was the Messiah and had said, okay, I'm going to just keep my head down and keep following the God of Israel and just be that devout Jew. That's important to recognize because of what's going to happen here. So these men hear this and it says in verse six, when the sound occurred, uh, the multitude came together and were confused. But because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Interesting, the word for language there is a word dialect. So this means that they when they were speaking in these tongues, they weren't just speaking in lone languages, they were speaking in specific dialects. They were, they were, they were, In other words, they weren't just talking, speaking Spanish in some generic sense, but they were speaking like Castillo Spanish, or a really specific kind of Spanish. Do you see what I'm saying? And so th- they're speaking these specific uh, dialects, and they're, when it says confused, it's probably a bad translation. It should be more like confounded. Confused means you don't know what's going on. Confounded means, I, I see what's going on, but I don't know how it's happening or why. Do you see what I'm saying? So they're really, they're confounded. And so it says that they, they all were amazed and marveled, saying to another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language, um, our own dialect, uh, in which we were born? And then they mention all these different areas. Now, these different sort of people groups from uh, from verse 9 all the way down through the first part of verse 11. Now I'm not going to try to repronounce those names. Adam did a really good job. I don't need to repeat it. Um, but what's really cool to do is if you uh, do a Google image search for these verses. There's lots of maps out there. I'm Sorry I didn't get one so I could show you today. But there's lots of maps out there that we'll show you. And what you'll see is the different kind of people groups that are named. What you basically have is you'll, you'll see that the Mediterranean Sea. Jerusalem sort of on uh, on this side of it. And then what will happen is that all these places are basically in a huge circle around this. It's like Jerusalem was the center. And this was this going out. And so you see this kind of miniature picture. This kind of uh, right from the very beginning. This momentum of the gospel going outwards. Not just staying in Jerusalem. So even though this is being preached in Jerusalem. These are men from all over the known world. From as Luke says under every nation. uh, From every nation under heaven. And so there's this reality that this is what they're seeing, that the, 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 the gospel is going out to these men specifically. Now, it says in verse 11 that we, hear them, it says that we hear them speaking in our own tongues, the wonderful works of God. And so they're all amazed, perplexed, and they say to one another, what could this mean? Now, of course, some are mocking. Now, they think they might be drunk, and uh, we'll see in a second. Obviously, that's not the case. And this doesn't mean, by the way, I should be really clear, this doesn't mean that they thought they were drunk because they were staggering or swaying or anything like that. It's just that they were like, how could this possibly happen? But this is the thing that we that we need to understand, okay? If you look, in fact, let's go ahead and quickly look there at 1 Corinthians 14, Paul tells us what the purpose of tongues is. 1 Corinthians 14. Don't lose your place in Acts, but go to 1 Corinthians 14. Right, so Paul talks about, starting in verse 20, Paul says, Brethren... Do not be children in understanding. However, in malice, that is in wrong motives towards each other, wanting to hurt each other, be babes. But in understanding, be mature. In the law, it is written, with men of other tongues and other lips, I will speak to this people. And yet, for all that, they will not hear me, says the Lord. Therefore, Paul says, tongues are for a sign. Not to those who believe but to unbelievers. But he says prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. Now, don't lose that place, but just listen to me for a second, okay? Now, Paul is quoting Isaiah, I think it's Isaiah 28. And he's quoting a time when Isaiah is basically rebuking God's people, saying, look, you're in this foreign land hearing a foreign language because you didn't believe. Now, all these devout Jewish men okay, that would have been there on the, during the Feast of Weeks, that would have been there on this day of Pentecost, they would have gone to the feast days, they would have heard the ceremonies happening in Hebrew, they would have heard preaching maybe or, or had conversations in Aramaic. So even though they had these own their original languages, they would have used the languages uh, that they would have known, uh, that they would have used for religious purposes. And so it's, in a sense, they would have expected to hear things of God in either Hebrew or Aramaic, Right? So here they are at this religious festival trying to honor God, and what do they hear? They hear the wonderful works of God in their own language, in a language that would be foreign to the religious work. Now, the reason I say that is because when Paul's talking about Isaiah 28 and and, and 1 Corinthians 14, he's talking about that that was a judgment, that God was saying, Look, I'm going to speak to you this way. You're going to hear foreign words to know you were wrong not to trust me. Do you understand? And so what you have happened at Pentecost is God in his mercy basically saying to the nation of Jews, to all these men, who, the most of whom rejected the Messiah, saying, you are wrong not to trust me. You are wrong not to believe in the Messiah. Do you see what I'm saying? Now, so in doing this, God's not trying to get them not to believe, but trying to expose the fact that they hadn't believed. In bringing this gift of tongues, or these gifts of tongues, among every believer there, he's wanting to make sure that everyone who's here, all these nations that hear, all these people from other nations here, they hear the wonderful works of God uh, in their own language to show them, look, you should have believed, you should have trusted the Messiah. And so Peter stands up to explain this and explain where this is coming from, okay? Verse 14. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day, nine o'clock in the morning. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. He says, and it shall come to pass in the last days. Now. Now. The interesting thing about this is the fact that he is quoting Joel What will seem to be the fact of two things. One, this is Joel predicted uh, that something's going to happen in the last days. And two, that what's going to happen is the work of God's Spirit. Now the last days is something that is really important for us to understand. When the Bible talks about the last days, in fact, if you are to read the book of Joel, or if you want to go back, I don't know if it's online now, but it used to be online, we did a series through the minor prophets. And what you'll find out is if you go through the book of Joel, the theme of the book of Joel is that this, this phrase, the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is this idea of the day that God decides to actually intervene in uh, in the lives of, of his people, or intervene on the earth. Usually it's a day of judgment when God says, okay, here's when the hammer's going to fall. Boom. But it could also be when God's going to judge the, the enemies of his people. Okay? So it's this idea that this is a day when God's going to intervene, he's going to do something radical. Okay? Now, when the Bible refers to the last days, it's a reference to those days, those very last days leading up to the time when God's kingdom is going to be established on this earth. Remember we talked about. Uh, when when Jesus is saying, look, you know, wait in Jerusalem, and they, or before Jesus says that, they said, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom? We talked about that in Acts chapter 1. And Jesus says, look, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons. And we mentioned this reality that God's kingdom is something that is already a reality because Jesus, the king, has come, but it's also not yet a reality because Jesus has not returned, okay? So the last days really are a reference to from the time that Jesus came, the first time, until the time that Jesus comes back, the last time. That's the last days, okay? So he says, in the last days, here's what is going to happen, says God, that I will pour out, uh, uh, I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. I don't know what middle-aged men are going to do, but anyway. And, uh, (laughs) <laughs> and on my men servants and on my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. Now, I don't know if you noticed, but none of those guys had prophesied. They hadn't talked about dreams or visions. They just all spoke in tongues. But what he's referring here to is not the specific manifestations that are going to happen that day. He's, he's referring to this reality that God's going to pour out a spirit on all flesh, on my sons and my daughters, on manservants and maidservants. Again, it's not just going to be for prophets, priests, and kings. What does the Bible say? What do we read? Uh, uh, what did uh, Adam teach us in Peter? That we are a kingdom of what? We're a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That God has called each one of us as believers to be those that are about the ministry that He has for us. All of us. Have a kingdom ministry, every single one of us. This is why it's, there's, there's a danger when we start talking about, oh, that person's really anointed, or that person's really anointed. Because John tells us in his epistle that we are all anointed. We're all anointed for the work that God's called us to do. Now it's it's okay to say, you might say to someone, about some of that that person's really anointed worship leader. I I use that terminology, I've used that before, in the sense that they seem to be specifically called to do that gift. That's okay. But we have to be recognized that sometimes in using that language, even though it's not wrong, it kind of gives this idea that the anointing means just someone who has a special purpose, as if not the rest of the body of Christ has a special purpose. When, when the reality is, the purpose of Pentecost is to show that this is what's happening. We're in the last days and now God's going to show, pour out His Spirit on all flesh, on all believers. Now he goes on to say in verse 19, I will show wonders in heavens above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Now, if you hear that terminology and go it sounds kind of scary you're right it is kind of scary because this is definitely talking about sort of the final judgment of God this is why you see parallel language used in the Olivet Discourse which is Matthew 24 Mark 13 and so on you see that where God when Jesus starts talking about his second coming he starts talking about pouring out uh, his wrath and, and, and the severity of that time this is a reference to that now as scary as that is I think Peter's probably reading this through just to kind of give us an idea of the time frame. In other words, the fact that God's going to pour out his Spirit, there's going to be the work of God's Spirit. It's not going to be just a temporary thing until the apostles pass away. Now, there are a lot of churches that actually believe in what theologians call cessationalism or cessationism. I can't say it. Say- what that's the word that's the word i can 't say it can't say it basically that the gifts of god 's spirit are going to cease now a lot of these churches are churches that really believe the real gospel they believe the gospels they really believe in a, in a solid good gospel, but because they're afraid of the supernatural stuff they 've seen the excesses and the wackiness that sometimes can get connected to it they think these things are going to are going to cease with the apostles, but when Peter's describing the work of the Spirit being on all flesh, not just the apostles. This is what he's describing happening at Pentecost. He seems to say this is going to continue to happen until this awesome and terrible day of the Lord. So it's not going to cease until Jesus comes back. That's important because as we talk about through the book of Acts and see what the Holy Spirit does, I'm going to bring out the application of us being open to what God wants to do. Being open to how God might want to use us. Now, he also says this in verse 21. He says, and it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, how did the chapter begin? The section begin? They were all in one, with one accord in one place. So what were they doing according to chapter 1, verse 14? Continuing steadfastly in prayer. They're praying. How does the section end? As, when he, as, as, as he quotes the book of Joel, this idea that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. In a sense, it starts with prayer and ends with prayer. The point is this, is that when it comes to what's going on at Pentecost, God wants us to know, Luke, I believe, was writing these things so that the believers who would read this to know would know that God's made a promise not just to 12 apostles, but to anyone who will believe in Him. Jesus made that promise. What did Jesus say? Anyone who's thirsty, let him come to Me. And he he who believes in Me... Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And this he spoke of the Holy Spirit. We need to be open to this promise. We need to learn to walk in this promise. Amen.